Women of War is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains references to war casualties, amputation, 19th century medical procedures, illness, depression, suicidal thoughts, and rape. It also contains some naughty language that may not be suitable for all listeners. This episode was recorded over Zoom. We apologise for any audio issues. Nicola, I am a nearly, nearly, nearly finished um, teacher as well as a historian of masculinity and crime. And I'm Hannah. I'm not teaching this semester, which since everything's now on Zoom is very, very exciting. And I research women who protested nuclear weapons in the 1950s and 1960s. And this is our podcast, Women of War, a podcast where we podcast... And we make episodes about women um, who were involved in conflicts throughout history from both the good side, the bad side, the medical side, the murdering side, and everything in between. Do we have any women murderers? Well, like, they kill people. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just reading tr- a lot of true crime at the moment. I'm thinking, like, murder. Oh, uh, yes, that murder, murder, eh? No, not that murder. A different, a different one. murder. So I don't actually read a lot of true crime. It's just awkward seeing people I know in those books. Anyway, where were we last week, Anna? <laughs> So, this week we're picking off where we left off with part one with Clara Barton, standing on a battlefield while the American Civil War raged on around her. If you haven't listened to part one yet, maybe go do that, might be a help. If you're currently driving while listening, first of all, good for you before being able to leave the house, and second, pull over and put the handbrake on before touching your phone. If you are listening while in lockdown like us, wearing your pyjamas and eating copious amounts of cheese, you do you. Like, there's, you know, listen out of order, remix, listen to part two before you listen to part one. There is no rules at this point in the lockdown. I will not judge at all if you're doing the right thing and staying home anyway. So, Nicola, do you want to kick us off with a reminder of what happened in Clara's life prior to her arrival in Sharpsburg, Maryland on September 16th, 1862? Yeah, so Clara Barton was one of, like, 11 children and she was one of the last ones born and she was a bit neglected from even though she was from quite a wealthy, well-off, comfortable family because she was so young. And back then it was like children are just young adults who haven't learned to do certain adult things yet. Uh, she became a very popular, very effective teacher who only used um, her writing crop once in the classroom, which is still really, really weird. Um, she was a teacher in several places. She established a community school. She worked at the patent office, I believe, in Washington until they demoted her for being a woman um because women uh women and um then she basically quit that and then the u.s civil war began because the southern states decided if they weren't allowed to keep slaves that was just not fair so they seceded from the union and became the confederate states and they then began attacking the union who were mostly anti-slavery um and so the union was like i guess we have to fight too and so the civil war started but as with most wars when they begin both sides are like yeah this will be done really really soon let's not worry too much about resources and certain things which meant both sides were quite ill-equipped on the medical front however in addition this is the 1800s so the medical front at this point is a bucket of tar some brandy and a stick to bite down on while they (laughs) cut your leg off and the saw don't forget the saw And so Clara sort of began working as an ad hoc collector of things that would be useful on the battlefield before progressing to becoming basically a battlefield, um, becoming a nurse, then moving to nursing basically on the battlefield. Um, 
and lemons and <laughs> look honestly i think that's a pretty good summary actually that is i'm very impressed Thank i you. was not expecting this because you had no forewarning that you had to do a summary yeah that's pretty much where we got to clara nurse without training i might add which is you know concerning but it's fine well once it's again honestly, back in the day you didn't actually need that much training to be a nurse it's like maggots work wet damp cloths work <laughs> also shout out to everyone working in the medical field right now especially oh, yeah. if you're dealing on the vaccination front it's been an incredibly tough 18 months for a lot of people in that field and shout out to you guys you are truly doing an incredible job unless you're an anti-vax nurse then what i want you to do is put a blindfold on and go walk <laughs> onto the nearest major road it will actually cure any issues you have take a long walk off a short pier yeah. Take a long walk up up here at Chevriot Beach or whatever it's called. <laughs> then you can find Harold Holt chilling in a submarine. All right, so let's back up a few days. On September 14th, 1862, the Union Army of the Potomac, the eastern arm of the Union forces, fought three battles at South Mountain in pursuit of the Confederates. The Union forces claimed an important victory, which boosted morale after repeated defeats in recent months. The Union victory at South Mountain nearly ended the Confederates' Maryland campaign. Because at this point, uh, as a reminder, the Confederates are kind of trying to invade Maryland. They're making their way downtown, walking oh, their faces past and they're homebound. So, Confederate General Robert E. Lee, who was commanding the Army of Northern Virginia, which was the Confederate Army, he did consider ending the Maryland invasion at this kind of setback from the Union. Uh, unfortunately, the Army of the Potomac commander, Major General George B. McClellan, you know he's uh, American his time, he's got that all-important middle initial, he didn't push the Union's advantage in the days following, and so Lee had to have time to gather his scattered forces for the Battle of Antietam? Antietam. Tim Tam. Anti-Tim Tam. Anti-Tim Tam. anti Anti-Tam. Anti-Tam? Which was the bloodiest day in American history. Wow, that was a segue there. Let's go, like, bloodiest acknowledged day. Because, like, are we going by proportion of population? Because there might have been a similar issue with the slaughter of Native Americans during the colonisation of the continental United States. Yeah, no, it is, the like, it's, it is dependent on records, yeah. um, obviously. I tried to find out. But I think it is the bloodiest day in terms of one single day where the most Americans died mm. in America. So Clara joined up with the Army of the Potomac in the aftermath of the Battle of South Mountain. For Clara, already becoming quickly accustomed to the horrors of war, the scale of devastation at South Mountain was overwhelming. It was all blood and carnage, our wagon wheels within six feet of yet unburied dead, a mingled mass of stiffened, blackened men, Horses, muskets, bayonets, knapsacks, haversacks, blankets, coats, canteens, broken wheels, and cannonballs which had done deadly work. The very earth plowed with shot. It was a fearful way to learn of a battle, a hard page to read. This was the closest... Ooh, hello. This was the closest Clara had come yet to the battlefront, and it was confronting. But it did not put her off what she had come to see as her mission. Clara was quite single-minded when it came to her duty to help wounded soldiers. She had little sympathy for anyone who didn't live up to her own exacting standards, and despite her years campaigning for her right to be treated the same as her male colleagues, Clara could be quite disparaging on women on the battlefield, or battlefront, sorry, who seemed to shirk their duty. 
Riding on one of her helpers, Almira Fails, Falls, uh, who had gone to get supplies at the first sign of danger, Clara asserted, I know I should never leave a wounded man there if I knew it, though I were taken prisoner 40 times. But overall, though Clara preferred to work alone, so much that she was dubbed the little lone lady in black silk, she continued to be an advocate for women on the battlefields. So I'm going to go off on a little tangent here about historical research. It may be cut depending on how much I ramble, but we're going to start with it. So when I was writing this episode, I was reading a biography of Clara, which was well-researched and it was published by University Press, which is usually a sign of quite rigorous scholarship. Uh, And this biography was discussing Clara's view of women on the battlefield, quoting an 1892 poem by Clara that appeared to illustrate Clara had no respect for women on the battlefield. Um, And so the author suggested that, in fact, Clara believed that they were everything that she herself had been charged with by men, like skittish, likely to run away at the sight of blood, unreliable, more likely to get in the way than help out. So now I'm going to get Clara here to help me illustrate my point. Clara, would you mind reading the first few stanzas of your poem, The Women Who Went to the Field? Oh, if you insist. I do insist, yes. The women who went to the field, you say. The women who went to the field. And pray, what did they go for? Just to be in the way? They'd not know the difference betwixt work and play. What did they know about war, anyway? What could they do? Of what use could they be? They would scream at the sight of a gun, don't you see? Just fancy them round where the bugle notes play, and the long rollers bidding us on to the fray. Imagine their skirts among artillery wheels, and watch for their flutter as they flee across the fields. When the charges round home and the fire belches hot, they will never wait for the answer and shot. They would faint at the first drop of blood in their sight. Thank you, Clara. We'll pause there for a sec. Hmm. So, the biography quoted, like, the last few lines of that quote about women never waiting for the answering shot to argue that Clara felt, quote, nothing but contempt, end quote, for these women, which seems like a good pro- quote to prove that. Um, you know, we have Clara's words here suggesting that women would run when the going got tough. But then I found the entire poem. Now, I've skipped a bit because it's fairly long, and this is not a poetry podcast, and Nicole's already on her phone. I'm not! But... <laughs> but what I skipped is sort of lines about the roles, the caring roles that women would do, such as knitting socks, which obviously they did do. So, Clara, would you mind continuing? And thus it was settled by common consent that husbands or brothers or whoever went, that the place for the women was in their own homes, there to patiently wait until victory comes. But later it chanced, just how no one knew, that the line slipped a bit and some gan to crowd through, and they went, where did they go? Ah, uh, where did they not? Show us the battle, the field, or the spot, where the groans of the wounded rang out on the air, that her ear caught it not, and her hand was not there, who wiped the death sweat from the cold, clammy brow, and sent home the message, tis well with him now, who watched in the tents whilst the fever fires burned. We'll skip a bit there again. Clara, can you take it from, and these were the women? And these were the women who went to the war. The women of question, what did they go for? Because in their hearts God had planted the seed of pity for woe and help for its need. They saw in high purpose a duty to do, and the armor of right broke the barriers through. Uninvited, unaided, unsanctioned of times, with pass or without it, they pressed on the lines. They pressed, they implored, till they ran the lines through, and this was the running the men saw them do. "'Twas a hampered work, its worth largely lost, "'twas hindrance and pain, and effort and cost. "'But through these came knowledge, knowledge is power, "'and never again, in the deadliest hour, 
of war or of peace shall we be so beset to accomplish the purpose our spirits have met and what would they do if war came again the scarlet cross floats where all was blank then they would bind on their brassards and march to the fray and the man liveth not who could say to them nay they would stamp with you now as they stood with you then the nurses the consolers and saviors of men thank you clara i'm quite proud of that one it's got a lovely rolling rhythm you know i could turn it into a song maybe a ballad i hear those are having a resurgence in 2021 yes thank you clara so my point is if you haven't tuned out by now because we're giving you flashbacks to forced literary analysis in school the rest of the poem clearly paints a very different image to the beginning. So in my interpretation of the beginning, Clara was illustrating what she believed men were thinking about women on the battlefield. I think you could alternatively argue that this image of the faint-hearted woman was how Clara saw the many well-meaning women that she dealt with at the middle of the war who were just giving her so many lemons and she didn't know what to do with these lemons. <laughs> but either way, if you read the entire poem, you, you definitely can't draw the conclusion that Clara believed women should not be on the battlefront. Um, so basically, this is all my very long-winded way of saying, everything you read has biases, conscious or unconscious, so always keep that in mind when you're doing your research on any topic. Now, where were we? I'm sorry, I'm reading about Robin E. Lee. <laughs> I'm a terrible feminist. <laughs> so, um, I think we're about to head to the Battle of Antietam. <laughs> yes, we were. All right. At dawn on the 17th of September, 1862... 87,000 Union soldiers engaged 45,000 Confederates near Antietam, I'm putting an extra T, Antietam Creek, a mile east of Sharpsburg. The battle rages over the day in cornfields, through woods and across bridges. In the early afternoon, it looks as though the overwhelming numbers of Union soldiers might prevail, but at the last minute, a Confederate force under General A.P. Hill arrives from Harpers Ferry to bolster the Army of North Virginia. With 22,717 estimated casualties from both sides, the battle still holds the title of the deadliest battle in American history. It's technically a draw, with neither side able to claim the victory. President Lincoln, however, uses the confusion to claim a Union victory from which to declare the Emancipation Proclamation five days later. The proclamation declares that the Union will free all slaves of rebellion states on January 1st, 1863. And this is a declaration that formally links the Union cause to anti-slavery. Despite the fact that the Emancipation Proclamation did not abolish slavery, nor did it free slaves in Union-controlled states. Where Clara was during all... Where was Clara? Where? Where, 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 where was Clara's characterization in Doctor Who? I mean, where was Clara during all this, you might ask? Well, after South Mountain, Clara travelled with the Union forces as part of the long 10-mile caravan of men's wagons and horses. Though she began at the back of the train where it was somewhat slightly safer, Clara was not content with being so far removed from the front. So when the train stopped on the night before Antietam, Clara did not. By morning she made her way to the front and had positioned herself just behind the cannons. As the cannons boomed on the morning of September 17th, Clara made her way across the cornfields to an abandoned homestead, you can probably understand why it was abandoned, where Union doctors had set up a dressing station. The dressing station, um, which would later be called a casualty clearing station in World War I, is often the first port of call for the severely wounded on the battlefield, who are often in too poor a condition to travel to a nearby field hospital. It's sort of like where you triage and stabilise or leave people to die, um, in this point of war, war medicine anyway. 
The dressing station yep. at Antietam was so close to the battle itself that shells would often land among the medical workers. The worst cases were brought here. Those with severe injuries, missing limbs and abdominal wounds because the walking wounded could get themselves to the field hospital. The doctors at the dressing station did their best but had limited supplies to work with. At times they were resorting to using corn leaves as bandages and there were tables of men on the house's porch waiting to be operated on. Again, without anaesthetic. And by operated, we mean there's a sore involved and it's it's not good. Bite on this. Then Clara arrived with her supply wagons. Armed with bandages, Clara quickly assessed the situation and got to work got to work organizing the wounded. She ordered some unengaged soldiers who were kind of just loitering around at this point to act as sort of pseudo stretcher bearers, finding the wounded and bringing them to the dressing station. In the chaos, Clara quickly began not only offering support to the patients and doctors, but began even operating herself. Her first surgery was at the behest of a young soldier with a bullet in his face, who begged her to help him and leave other, more seriously wounded men for the surgeons. So Clara got out her pocket knife. Another soldier held the boy's head, and Clara dug out the bullet. I do not think a surgeon would have pronounced it a scientific operation, but that it was successful I dared to hope from the gratitude of the patient. At another point, she was helping a patient drink some water when... A bullet sped its full and easy way between us, tearing a hole in my sleeve and found its way into his body. Dr James Dunn, a surgeon at the Battle of Antietam, later told the Union commander of Clara's work, quote, The rattle of 150,000 muskets and the fearful thunder of over 200 cannons told us that the great Battle of Antietam had commenced. I was in the hospital in the afternoon, for it was only then that the wounded began to come in. We had expended every bandage, tore up every sheet in the house, and everything we could find, when who should drive up but our old friend Miss Barton, with a team loaded down with dressings of every kind and everything we could ask for. In my feeble estimation, General McClellan, with all his laurels, sinks into insignificance beside the true heroine of the age. The Angel of the Battlefield. End quote. Snaps. Clara worked at the dressing station for 24 hours straight, even when other nurses arrived to relieve her. She felt unable to sleep while there were men suffering around her. I don't think my days are success until there are men suffering near me. All right. Finally, when the battle was <laughs> over and the wounded that had survived were able to be moved to proper hospitals, Clara began the journey back to Washington, having exhausted all her supplies. Having worked in difficult conditions for six weeks straight, Clara arrived back in Washington with typhoid fever. Typhoid is a bacterial infection that can cause internal bleeding and infection in the digestive system, organ failure, and death. Clara was bedbound for a month, unable to do anything to help the war effort. But by October 25th, 1862, she had recovered enough to request a horse from the quartermaster. She caught up with the army again at Harper's Ferry, which is a really important battle zone basically in the civil war bringing with her more wagons full of supplies she's right back in the thick of it after antietam union leader major general mcclellan did not push any advantage again and despite repeated requests from both lincoln and the war department to go after lee's confederate forces mcclellan refused so lincoln replaced mcclellan with major general ambrose e burnside ambrose e burnside who was also the originator of the term sideburn, which they because he had very he had very fabulous sideburns, um, and so eventually his name Burnside got flipped around to sideburn, that's, and that's where we get the name sideburn. Because I thought they were popularized during the Crimean War because all the men grew mutton chops and like long sideburns, but I guess that's where the name yeah. comes from instead. Yeah, oh, learned something else today. Yeah. There you go. 
Yep. Always learn something in our podcast. So, Burnside decided that the most important step was to capture Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy. I'm sorry, you've actually pronounced that incorrectly. Richmond, Virginia. That's how you say it. Richmond, Virginia. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Is it? It's got an accent. If you're from Richmond, Virginia. Richmond, Virginia. Why don't you let us know? <laughs> if you're from Richmond, Melbourne, or Richmond, Tasmania, or Richmond, New South Wales, Richmond, or the Canada. 22 other Richmonds in the world, there are so many Richmonds, it's ridiculous. Hello? White people get better at naming your suburbs. If you're from Richmond, so- Richmond Football Club, why are you listening to us? This is a Saints-only fan podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Bulldogs. <laughs> so Burnside Burnside decided that the next step was to capture Richmond, Virginia which was the capital of the Confederacy so he therefore ordered the Army of the Potomac to march on Richmond via Fredericksburg the Confederates also marched towards their capital via Fredericksburg I feel like some of these names is probably like the equivalent of us hearing people say Melbourne and we're just like, no, it's Melbourne. So Clara travelled with the troops. During the journey, there were skirmishes between Union and Confederate forces, but no major battles. Clara dealt with any injuries that arose from these skirmishes, as well as those suffering from the dysentery and scurvy plaguing the ranks. What do you know? She did need all those lemons. So Clara was as good at winning over the hearts of the soldiers as she had been at winning over the hearts of her students, and she was made a daughter of the 21st Massachusetts Regiment. Clara loved feeling like she was part of the military and looked back on marching through Virginia with the troops with fondness. Concerned that she looks back on dealing with dysentery with fondness, to be honest, but look. Anyway, it was the army life that thrilled her. She remembered the journey as... Those bright autumn days, and at night the blaze of a thousand campfires lighting up the forest tops, while from ten thousand voices rang out the never-ending chorus of the Union Army singing John Brown's body. For Clara, it was a badge of honour to suffer alongside the soldiers. I am a US soldier, you know, and therefore not supposed to be susceptible to fear. It had become a challenge to prove her toughness, partly as a way to prove her worth and her right to be on the battlefield as a woman, but also I kind of think just to prove she was the best. She she had a bit of a a thing with wanting to prove that she was the better the best person to ever do the thing that she was doing. She would often take risks on the battlefield to prove her own bravery. And she would then make sure that everyone knew how brave and courageous and heroic she was. Sounds like Lenny Riefenstahl. That, (laughs) Clara's got got her issues, but comparing her to Lenny Riefenstahl is a big insult. (laughs) I think it's like, um, there's nothing wrong with that though, like sharing what you're proud of doing. Like if you are saving all these men, you've done an amazing, wonderful thing. So yeah. On one occasion, she reprimanded the wagon drivers who doubted her and held up the army train by proclaiming, As long as I had any food, I should share it with them. That when they were hungry and supperless, I should be. That if harm befell them, I should care for them. If sick, I should nurse them. She's just, like, I think she's doing a lot of good work. I do think she's a little bit self-righteous. Yeah, because you don't hold up. They're probably trying to get somewhere quickly. Yeah. Beat the Confederacy. You know, those guys. Yeah. Anyway. Like, Clara, you're doing important stuff, but also you are not in charge, or nor do you know the main plans of the army and what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> Clara reluctantly returned to Washington with wounded and sick soldiers, where she immediately began gathering more supplies. While in Washington, she met up with her nephew, 
who thought she looked tired and overwrought, what a kind young boy, and who begged her to donate her gathered supplies and then immediately return home. Now, if you've been paying attention, unlike me, you might guess that Clara was unlikely to do this. She travelled to the Army of the Potomac at Falmouth near Fredericksburg. Falmouth was a muddy field crammed with exhausted and disillusioned Union soldiers. At Falmouth, Clara established a hospital at Chatham Manor, which was then called Lacey House. Lacey House overlooked Rappahannock River, which divided the Union Army from the Confederate forces. She distributed her supplies to the other hospitals around, but contrary to her nephew's advice, Clara could feel the impending battle in the air and refused to leave. Major General Burnside planned to use floating bridges or pontoons to cross the Rappahannock and march on Richmond, beating the Confederate forces there and claiming the city for the Union. However, the arrival of the bridges was delayed, allowing the Confederates to catch up to the Union forces and take up positions across the river and throughout Fredericksburg. This did not deter Burnside, who was unable to adapt to the changing circumstances. Oh God, this is going to end very badly. And so planned to go ahead with his original plan. On December 11th, Burnside sent over a landing... Oh, it's in present tense now. Hello. What a, what a literary technique we've got here today. Well done, you. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> On December 11th, Burnside sends over a landing party to Fredericksburg to subdue Confederate snipers and establish a hold on the city. There is fighting in the streets and the Confederates withdraw to allow reinforcements to arrive. That night, as plans were made to send the rest of the Union forces over the Rappahannock the next day, Clara could sense the anticipation and fear in the air. At 2 a.m., unable to sleep, she wrote to her cousin, Vira. Five minutes of time with you, and God only knows what those five minutes might be worth to the many doomed thousands sleeping around me. It is the night before battle, the enemy, Fredericksburg, and its mighty entrenchments lie before us, the river between. At tomorrow's dawn, our troops will essay to cross, and the guns of the enemy will sweep those frail bridges at every breath. The moon is shining through the soft haze with a brightness almost prophetic. For the last half hour, I have stood alone in the awful stillness of its glimmering light, gazing upon the strange, sad scene around me, striving to say, Thy will, O God, be done. The campfires blaze with unwanted brightness. The sentry's tread is still but quick. The acres of little shelter tents are dark and still as death. No wonder for us as I gazed sorrowfully upon them. I thought I could almost hear the slow flap of the grim messenger's wings, as one by one he sought and selected his victims for the morning. Sleep, weary one, sleep and rest for tomorrow toil. Oh, sleep and visit in dreams once more the loved ones nestling at home. They may yet live to dream of you, cold, lifeless, and bloody, but this dream, soldier, is thy last. Paint it brightly, dream it well. Oh, northern mothers, wives, and sisters— all unconscious of the hour, would to heaven that I could bear for you the concentrated woe which is so soon to follow. Would that Christ would teach my soul a prayer that would plead to the Father for grace sufficient for you. God, pity and strength you, every one. Mine are not the only waking hours. The light yet burns brightly in our kind-hearted general's tent, where he pens what may be a last farewell to his wife and children, and thinks sadly of his fated men." Already the roll of the moving artillery is sounded in my ears. The battle draws near, and I must catch one hour's sleep for tomorrow's labor. Good night, near cousin, and heaven grant you strength for your more peaceful and less terrible, but not less weary, days than mine. At dawn on December 12th, the bulk of the 123,000 Union soldiers began crossing the river to occupy Fredericksburg. Over the day, there were minor battles and skirmishes between Union and Confederate troops. 
but the Confederates only offered minor resistance to the Union troops while they awaited reinforcements. On December 13th, the true Battle of Fredericksburg began, when Burnside ordered his troops to attack Lee's Confederates. The Confederates, now numbering 78,000 and holding the high ground at Mary's Heights, pushed back and by the time darkness fell, no one had gained any ground. But the Union had suffered nearly 13,000 casualties, compared to the Confederate 6,000. It was clear who had won. This is the Empire Strikes Back of the um, American Civil War. (laughs) When the battle began, Clara was at Falmouth doing what she could to prepare for incoming wounded and deal with the first casualties when she received a message from a surgeon in Fredericksburg. Come to me, your place is here. Ooh, hello. A wounded Confederate soldier who she'd been tending warned Clara of the dangers awaiting her in Fredericksburg, but to no avail. Across the bridge she went, under heavy rifle fire. Just as she reached the other side of the river, a shell exploded. Like, there's no shells in the river, that's at the beach. Just as she reached the other side of the river, a shell exploded, tearing off a piece of her skirt. Almost immediately, another shell exploded nearby, killing a Union soldier. Into this chaos walked Clara. Clara made her way to one of the main division hospitals. The Army of the Potomac was divided into three divisions, and each division had one main hospital where its wounded were sent. At the hospital, Clara first set up a soup kitchen to begin feeding the incoming wounded. As the casualties streamed in, Clara tended them as she had become well-versed in doing, offering comfort to the wounded. As she had in previous battles, Clara found herself tending those she knew. At Fredericksburg, Clara Clara even found herself taking care of the student who had caused her so much trouble that she whipped him. (laughs) Just, like, brings out the riding whiff again. Like, oh, you think you're hurt now, Brad? (laughs) You thought you got away with this, did you? The hospitals had their work cut out for them. Though clearly a Confederate victory, General Lee refused to call a truce that would allow the Union to collect their wounded and dead from the battlefield. So much for Southern hospitality. In the freezing December Mm. temperatures, the Union wounded lay for three days among the dead, their bodies freezing to the ground and adding frostbite to their injuries. In the aftermath of the battle, Clara travelled all over Fredericksburg to find and tend to the wounded. Later, she returned to the hospital at Lacey's house, Lacey House sorry, to help with the confusion and chaos. On the porch outside the mansion were amputated limbs piled up, and inside was worse. Hundreds of wounded soldiers were squished in like sardines on the floors, on top of cabinets and under tables, with blood everywhere. I wrung the blood from the bottom of my clothing before I could step for the weight about my feet. Oh, that's a sick metal-ass fun quote. I'm sure there were also rats coming in to feed on the amputated limbs at a bit of them. Oh, yeah, there would have been bugs everywhere, like flies, maggots. Maggots aren't always leeches. a bad thing, though. Yeah, but you don't want them, like... Oh, yeah, they do. Tr- they they did use them to, like, eat dead flesh off living limbs. Yeah. But still, you don't want a lot of, like, maggots around. Clara remained working at Lacey House until the last week of December, living in a tent beside her wagon. It was only once her supplies had run out and most of the wounded had been repatriated back to Washington that Clara, too, returned to the capital. As 1862 shivered into 1863, Clara was as weary as the soldiers but felt that she was part of them. I am glad, too, that I have not time always to make me a comfortable clothing, for I think I discern the shivers running under a soldier's thin shirt all the sooner. Clara was indeed relying on the army for her food rations and friends for other donations of clothes. The little money she had coming in from her half-salary at the patent office she used to buy more supplies for the troops. 
Nevertheless, Clara still found the war the best outlet for her sense of patriotism, du mm, patriotism, duty, and responsibility. All the traits that meant she had struggled to find a purpose before the war now perfectly fit with her current mission. She loved the work and felt loved by those for whom she did it. Even in Washington, away from the battlefield, soldiers would offer her small presents or salute as she walked past. The early months of 1863 were slow on the war front, and so Clara spent her time trying to win pensions for wounded soldiers and campaigning for the reformation of the military's medical training and supplies. And of course, collecting more supplies herself for when she would be needed on the battlefield again. Ironically, her efforts to improve ambulances, medical supplies and hospital functioning meant that she effectively made her own role of like an independent helper almost obsolete. Um, because, you know, once they were functioning, they didn't need other people to help with their dysfunction. Mm. So though Clara would continue to help out where she could, her work was increasingly held up by medical directors, nursing superintendents, army generals and commission officials who kind of thought, well, we don't need you anymore. Um, so though Clara accompanied her brother, who was now a quartermaster, to the islands outside South Carolina, from where the Union helped to capture Charleston, she was disappointed by the lack of action from which she was excluded mostly anyway. It's funny because it's like, because she's doing her job so well, the role of her job is then to become not needed. Exactly. Like, it's, she, sh she shot herself in the foot, but she couldn't not do it. Like, if you're going to do the job, you can't do it badly yeah. <laughs> so that you don't, you know, get replaced. So, mm. it's like, good job on you. <laughs> we don't need you. <laughs> Rather than on the battlefront, Clara was thrown into the officer's social scene on Hilton Head Island. Rather than camping in a tent next to her wagon, Clara was now sharing two rooms with her brother next to the chief quartermaster's headquarters. During this period, Clara was courted by colonels and captains and enjoyed flirting and coming along the beaches with men. One romance in particular stood out, that between Clara... Did you just say coming along the beaches? Yeah, because it has a C. It's got a hard C. It's funnier because it, it's alliterative. Because it's like colonels and captains and enjoyed flirting and coming along the beaches with men. Like going along, but coming along. I Sorry, I was thinking you were talking about orgasms. How, how do you know what an <laughs> orgasm is? Anyway, all right. <laughs> One romance in <laughs> Moving on. One romance in particular stood out. Hello to Julie. Um, that between Clara and Colonel... Hi, Dad and Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> with whom she exchanged poetry. Okay, going back. One romance in particular stood out, that between Clara and Colonel Yule, with whom she exchanged poetry and visited multiple times in a day. Slight snag, however, Yule was married. Though the war had grown distant for Clara in her affair with Yule, it wasn't long before she felt uncomfortable living the high, adulterous life while she knew there were soldiers suffering. I am sick at heart. I only wish I could work to some purpose. I have no right to these easy, comfortable days, and our poor men suffering and dying, thirsting in this hot sun, and I so quiet here in want of nothing. It is not rightfully distributed. My lot is too easy, and I am sorry for it. It had been months, and the Union had not made any headway into capturing Charleston. Finally, in July 1863, Brigadier General Quincy Gilmore, who needs an middle initial, so let's go with B. Quincy B. Gilmore launched an assault on Fort That's Wagner good. on Morris Island. Clara finally had something to do. Equipped with a horse and an ambulance, Clara boarded the ship that would take the troops to Morris Island. 
From the ship, Clara watched as the siege began. It lasted a week, then finally Gilmore sent Union troops to take the fort, believing the siege had done its work and weakened the Confederate forces. It had not. As the rain poured, so did the bullets, and the Union soldiers charged into a wave of gunfire. Clara watched from the ship as Yule was shot before determinedly making her way to shore, despite the constant hail of bullets. She revived Yule, then Clara tended to the wounded men passed over by the surgeons, offering comfort and courage. Clara set up in a tent on Morris Island, from where she set up a base to distribute supplies. She helped the regimental surgeon establish a field hospital, focusing on finding food for the wounded. Through all her experience on the battlefield, the siege of Fort Wagner was the least provisioned Clara had ever found herself, and it was hectic. Clara writing in her diary, Cannot give details as I have neglected to keep up my journal in my haste to do, and, and all the inconveniences I have to suffer in the way of being able to get anything ready for the men to eat. Finally, the Union forces took the fort and brought, brought in their heavy guns to begin the bombardment of Charleston, roughly 7.5 miles or 12 kilometres away from Morris Island. The pride and joy of these guns was the Swamp Angel, an 8-inch cannon which managed to fire 36 times before blowing itself up. Good job, Swamp Angel. A+. Though it had helped destroy Fort Sumter, which was not really helpful in the war, but the destruction of the fort that the Union had lost right at the start would surely have had some sense of satisfaction for the Union soldiers. Um, Throughout the bombardment of Charleston, Clara lived in her tent on Morris Island, advancing when the army advanced. It was brutal conditions. Rain, wind, scorching sun, maggoty food, and contaminated water that had filtered through decaying bodies before reaching the receptacles. And for Clara, added to this was the fact that the army officials didn't believe she should even be there. They felt that her demands for better conditions was a criticism of their organisation, and they got sick of her trying to keep taking their supplies. They tried to force her out by reclaiming her tent and ordering her to use only her own supplies rather than army resources. Clara stubbornly persevered, but the constant resistance to her efforts and put incredible strain upon her, leading to a physical collapse which was likely exacerbated by dysentery from all the contaminated water that she'd been drinking. I, no longer able to see, was lying weak and helpless as a child, little knowing and less minding towards what goal my way was wending. I mean... To be fair, she wasn't officially meant to be there, and she was using their resources. So, uh, yeah, no civilians on a battlefield, please. Anyway, Clara was taken off Morris Island, and it took two weeks before she was on the mend. While she was ill, Yule and a few other of Clara's supporters tried to have her reinstated as a more official part of the Army Medical Department. There you go. Begrudgingly, the officials relented, and Clara was called back to Morris Island on September 7th, 1863 only to be told a week later that her services were no longer required and she should return to the Hilton Head Island where the soldiers had been stationed before the advance on Charleston. This understandably threw Clara into a funk and she grew quite depressed, calling this period the severest ordeal of her life. She appealed to the Union General, reminding him of all her accomplishments and the help she had given at previous battles, but General Gilmore was unimpressed. Already frustrated by civilians like Clara demanding supplies and attention while he was trying to organise a siege. Which is kind of fair. Yeah. Like, at this point, she's like, only got more of a medical system set up. They might not actually need her there. You know, like, you've, you've done good work, Clara, but also at the same time, there's other shit happening around you. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the cavalry in World War One. Like, boys, you don't need the horses anymore. Please get off. <laughs> 
so Clara was forced to return to Hilton Head. If the luxuries of Hilton Head had delighted her before, now they were a continual reminder that she was living the high life while others suffered. Clara couldn't even help out in the army hospitals on Hilton Head, as these had been claimed by the Sanitary Commission, who had very strict rules and procedures and also now had the backing of the US government. Moreover, the Sanitary Commission were wary of Clara, who had begun to develop a bit of a reputation as a pig-headed troublemaker. All these setbacks infuriated Clara. What can I do? First, it is not my province. I should be out of place there. Next, the surgeons will not brook any interference and will, in my opinion, resent and resist the smallest efforts to break over their own arrangements. What others may be able to do I am unable to conjecture, but I feel that my guns are effectually silenced. Should I prepare my food and thrust it against the outer wall in the hope it might strengthen the patients inside? Should I tie up my bundle of clothing and creep in and deposit it on the doorstep and slink away like a guilty mother? While stuck at Hilton Head, Clara spent time with Frances D. Gage, an older woman who had helped nurse soldiers and who was an outspoken advocate for women's rights. Frances, or Aunt Franny, as Clara, Aunt Fanny, as Clara called her. That's very feminist. Beca- it is. <laughs> Aunt Fanny became a feminist mentor to Clara during this period of inactivity, and it was through Frances' influence that Clara took the final steps towards becoming an active supporter of women's suffrage. So what had begun when Clara grew up with her mother, who advocated for women's rights, and when Clara herself advocated for her right to be paid the same wage as a man was kind of now coming full circle in Clara's mind and she became like a conscious supporter of women's suffrage. Aunt Fanny also encouraged Clara to think beyond universal white suffrage and believe in equal rights of all, regardless of race. So though Clara's mother had also supported abolition um, and despite Clara's own liberal mindedness, she'd never really given much thought about abolition and equal rights for black Americans. Clara had, in fact, argued earlier in the war that it wasn't about slavery in any way. But Francis opened Clara's eyes to the ineffectualities of emancipation. Yes, slaves could be free, but they had no property, limited or no education, and barely any way to earn a living outside of the work that they had been doing as slaves. So, though kept back from the battlefield, Clara began campaigning through her published letters for more rights for black Americans and women. You know what that is? Growth. Growth. Yeah, it's very much that idea of like she starts off as like kind of a white feminist. Like I'm here. It's like she was in it. <laughs> she just sort of like and yeah. her own dreams, which is cool. Like that's fine, but with no thought to the greater collective. And you almost see that with her, like thinking mm-hmm. they need me on the battlefield. And it's like they did it first, but right now they don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She sort of she doesn't see further than herself mm-hmm. at times. So when she's doing the teaching work and she's advocating for equal right, like equal pay. It's because she's like, well, I'm doing the same work as John, so I deserve to be paid the same, which is very valid. But she doesn't think further than that. She doesn't think of, like, the systematic reasons behind why that's the case. And so it's at this point in her life when she's stuck on um, Hilton Head and she can't do what she really wants to do and she's talking to Francis that she starts kind of, like, making those final connections a bit. So it's sort of like, oh... It's bigger than me. Did she advocate for sense? other female teachers to get the same rates of pay as men or just herself? She did a, it did, she did a couple of times, um, but she did also fall into, at times, like, not like other oh, girls. Classic. Oh, that, nobody. So, yeah, she, she often didn't get along with other women she was working with, and I think that's because she was like, I've got to prove I'm the best. 
And to prove I'm the best, I've got to prove I'm not like other women. So there was that element going on as well. So this work advocating for black Americans and women was not the work Clara truly wanted to do. She was effectively barred from working in the nearby hospitals. And so her frustration at her own inactivity grew. Added to this, her boyfriend, Yule's wife, was due to arrive in December. And so... Awkward. And she was very stressed by this. And Clara was also fighting to retain her position and half salary at the patent office when other female clerks demanded the position be made vacant for someone who'd actually do the work. Which is, like, I guess, another example here. Of, like, okay, that's kind of fair. Like, she's using the money to support the wall, but, like, yeah. So though she managed... But she's not doing the work at the patent office and she's like, but I deserve to get paid for it. And all the other female clerks are like, um, but you're not doing the work. So though she managed to retain her position, this was all an added insult and Clara left South Carolina on December 31st, 1863. If Clara had hoped to bounce back once in Washington, she did not. It was winter when she arrived in the capital and army actions were slow. The Sanitary Commission had now taken control of hospitals in the city, and so Clara either couldn't or wouldn't work with them. Just as she had in the past when faced with no purpose, Clara descended into listlessness and then deep depression over the first months of 1864. She often struggled to get out of bed and at times contemplated suicide. I've been sad all day. I cannot raise my spirits. The old temptation to go from all the world. I think it will come to that some day. It is a struggle to keep in society at all. I want to leave it all. And I also wonder if this is some kind of referred mental issues from being on these horrific battlefields as well. Yeah, I mean, like, put it all aside when you're in the middle of it and now you're in the inaction, it all comes back. Yeah. Finally, in spring, as the Union surged back into action, Clara was given a purpose again, which pulled her out of her depression. The Army of the Potomac was now commanded by General Ulysses S. Grant. And you know he's legit because he's got the middle initial. He does win awesome name of the century, though, like Ulysses S. Grant. He does. Yeah. It, he does. It's, a it's good the name. S that makes it. Grant planned to take advantage of the Union's high number of troops to wear down the Confederates. So essentially, Grant did what the Soviets would do in World War II and what others would do throughout wars when they've got a lot of men, but not necessarily another tactical advantage. Just throw men at the enemy, because they're sort of expendable to you if you're in charge. In the wilderness around Spotsylvania County, Virginia, Grant sent men in their thousands to their deaths, and moved the army on after battles without stopping. So this strategy justifiably caused outrage among the public, even those who supported the war like Clara. I am holding my breath in awe at the vastness of the shadow that floats like a pall over our head. It has come that man is no longer in an individual existence, but is counted in thousands and measured in miles. Because the, the men aren't getting a chance to rest and recover. Yeah, they're not getting a chance to rest and recover. And it's also like, it's the, tac- the tactic of maybe we can't win by any other means. Like, we're just going to throw men yeah. and it might be a losing battle, but we might get something out of it so it's sort of that senseless if we can lose three thousand troops each but i have ten thousand troops and you have seven thousand troops i am going to be in a better state after this battle Exactly. exactly the sanitary commission had severely underestimated the supplies needed in the face of such carnage and so clara now had a mission the mission well she had a full tank of gas half a pack of cigarettes The Secretary of War finally (laughs) granted her travelling passes and provided transportation for her to bring her supplies to the army. Clara took her supplies boat to Fredericksburg, where many wounded men were being brought. 
even though there were now ambulances aplenty, conditions were still dire due to the weather, with heavy rains turning the ground to clay and bogging down transports. This made the journey um, so jumpy and slow that wounded soldiers in the back of wagons would die from shock or exposure. Moreover, Union officers were too proud to demand that Confederate civilians offer up their homes for the wounded, and so there were men crammed into the few houses the Union had taken over. Seeing men lying on the wet floors begging her for a biscuit was the final straw for Clara, who hurriedly made her way back to Washington to find a better solution. Clara approached Henry Wilson, who was her senator from Massachusetts and one of her longtime supporters. She argued her case to him, and he then took the situation to the War Department, who had no clue how bad things were in Fredericksburg. This did the job, and the houses in Fredericksburg were open to the wounded Union soldiers. Clara remained in Washington only long enough to gather more supplies and issue a public appeal for aid. Clara returned to Fredericksburg and the overwhelming work waiting for her there. The numbers of casualties were unimaginable, and Clara worried at what cost the war would be won. In June, Clara again tried to get closer to the front. She appealed to Wilson, who sent a letter of introduction on her behalf to General Benjamin Butler, and so Benjamin Butler, who looks like Brad Pitt, um, the com- was the commander of the army of the James, the Union army that served along the James River. Butler was interested by Wilson's letter and so met with Clara for an interview. Butler was pompous and had little strategic insight. And he was an arsehole who decreed that during the Union occupation of New Orleans, any woman who insulted Union men was to be considered a sex worker and, in effect, raped. Wonderful. Lovely. What a charming man. Mm-hmm. Maybe Clara didn't know, or maybe because it fit with her own views of patriotism, but Clara liked Butler, Ooh. partly because he was from Massachusetts and partly because he listened to her ideas. Yeah, this is very much a, she's not a feminist, she's in it for herself. I don't know. She probably didn't know about this. Like, this probably came out later. Yeah. Um, but I, I could see her kind of being like, well, they deserved it because they weren't supporting the union. Why are you out on the bit... street insulting soldiers? You should be inside spinning or being a nurse. Like, come on. Yeah, it's sort of yeah. She's she's complicated. She's complicated. On the twenty third of June, eighteen sixty four, Butler offered Clara a position at the Point of Rocks Hospital in Virginia, where she would be in charge of diet and nursing, and only below the supervising surgeon. Clara would later say that Butler had made her the superintendent of nursing of the Army of the James, but there's no official record of this, and there were other nurses of equal rank to her. But she had found her purpose again, and someone in a high enough position would let her do her work. So again, like that's a common theme in her biography of her being like, I was the first to do this. I was the most important in this situation. And maybe she hadn't but heard of the other women. Absolutely, like, who got there's absolutely no evidence backing her up like there's other times where she's like i was the first to get there and then there's evidence being like no you weren't or she was like this was my idea and there's evidence from letters someone else suggesting it to her so yeah and maybe she genuinely of, yeah. forgot that's where she got the idea from like because she probably would have gotten millions of letters yeah. but yeah the field hospital was basic it was basically an encampment of tents along the james river that was packed and unpacked as it followed the army Those brought to the hospital were primarily those suffering from illness and disease, such as typhoid, dysentery, pneumonia, and I'm going to assume at least a bit of syphilis, rather than wounded soldiers who were most often sent to more equipped hospitals in Washington. Due to this, the hospital was a lot slower and less hectic than those Clara had worked in before. As she had previously, Clara began to work as the cook, ensuring that there was enough food for the patients. However, unlike previously, 
Clara had plenty of supplies easily at hand, as the camp was directly across the river from one of the Union Army's main storage warehouses. Her time was now spent on caring for the ill, providing food and entertainment rather than tending to the wounded and dying, and she found the work satisfying. For Clara, being able to bring a man found suffering from fever in the trenches to health was rewarding. You will fail to comprehend the magnitude of the change because it will be impossible for you to realise the depths of the misery they were taken from. It's like when you've got a plant that's dying and you fix it. It's very satisfying. It is. In August, the hospital moved close to the armies at Petersburg, Virginia, where the Union forces had been engaged with the Confederates since June in trench warfare. So actually, Petersburg, this is a bit confusing. So obviously, when the Tsar was deposed, they renamed it Petrograd, Virginia. And then when Lenin died, they named it Leningrad, Virginia. (laughs) And now it is, again, Petersburg, Virginia. So the Richmond-Petersburg campaign, or the Siege of Petersburg, is actually one of the first examples of sustained trench warfare that would become the norm in World War I. The situation regularly changed and the tent hospital repeatedly packed up and moved so as to stay close to the front lines but far enough away from the battle. So on top of the work of feeding a hospital, Clara was also involved in packing and unpacking, moving patients, cleaning and all that other stuff in order to keep the hospital functional as it moved. Still I leave so much undone. Night comes and I chide me that I have done so little and morning returns and I feel that I should not have spent so many hours in sleep when so many about me perhaps could not sleep at all. Like, I know they have to move the hospital. Like, this makes sense. But also, I find it hilarious, like, the image of being like, quick, guys, fold up yeah. the tents, like, huh. to move the hospital. Like, you, you can't just move a hospital. Did you get the pegs, guys? <laughs> Did you get the pegs? In January 1865, <laughs> Clara returned to Washington after Butler had been removed from his command and she again lost her sponsor. Her future was once again uncertain with the army, and it was clear the war would be over before too long, leaving Clara without the humanitarian work she craved. She's like a mercenary, but for medicine. Like, I gotta fix them wounded soldiers! (laughs) Literally. She's like bloodthirsty, but to stop the blood. While in Washington, Clara heard that freed Union prisoners from the South were coming into the city in a terrible state, needing food and clothing after their long periods in captivity. This was perfect for Clara, who could then exert her energies to help those men. She approached Wilson to get his support, and he arranged a meeting with Lincoln. To Clara's frustration, this meeting was repeatedly delayed because Lincoln kept wanting to go to the theatre, and she again resented the fact that she was often prevented from doing what she wanted by bureaucracy. I feel that some hand above mine rules and esteem my progress. I cannot understand, but try to be patient. Still it is hard. I was never more tempted to break down with disappointment. By the spring of 1865, the Union had surrounded the Confederates and the South was exhausted. The Union probably was too, to be fair. On April 2nd, the Confederate capital city, Richmond, fell to the Union. The Confederate President, Jefferson Davis, and other members of the Confederate government fled. Though some Confederate officers advocated continuing the war using guerrilla tactics, General Lee knew there was no way forward for the Confederacy except surrender. On April 9th, 1865, almost four years to the day since the war began, Lee met with Ulysses S. Grant at the Appomattox Appomattox Courthouse to offer the Confederacy's surrender, or more specifically, the surrender of his army of Northern Virginia. A man who knows three Confederate (laughs) armies. Three Confederate armies remained. And it took another seven weeks before all had officially laid down their weapons. Um, And it wouldn't even be until August 20th, 1866, that the president formally declared the Civil War over. I'm assuming that's President Lincoln, not former President Jefferson Davis. And no, it wasn't President Lincoln. President Lincoln's dead. Oh, well, yeah, by the way, Lincoln had been assassinated. 
Assassinated. <laughs> and President Andrew Johnson in 1866 declared the war over. For Clara, however, this period, which should have been one of celebration for someone who had worked so hard for the war effort, was overshadowed by personal tragedy. Both her brother and her nephew die within a short space of time, and this double tragedy consumed her. I have parted with the two who perhaps in the old time has twined most deeply about my heart, who had traits of character more in common with myself than any others, whose love for me was a man of wealth and around whose dear memories the tenderest fibres of my heart still cling, and crushed and torn and buried still ache and bleed. After this loss, Clara found purpose again in finding missing prisoners of war, a mission which had finally been sanctioned by Lincoln before he was assassinated. Uh, if only there was a young Vera Deacon around to help her set up some kind of wounded and missing hero. <laughs> oh, well. Clara travelled to Annapolis, where she found a tent city in the Maryland capital full of starving and ill men arriving from the south. Yet, despite the sanction from the now-dead Lincoln, the War Department didn't really know what to do with Clara. Though overwhelmed by the number of people looking for their missing kin, the War Department overlooked Clara in all that confusion. It wasn't until eight weeks after Clara arrived in Annapolis that a general finally gave her some work to begin. The lists of prisoners were often missing or incomplete, adding to the chaos. At least half of all Union men killed in action were unidentified, and there were around, around 190,000 graves without a name, making it nearly impossible to find the missing men. Army records were not going to help, and so Clara turned to the returning men themselves, asking for their recollections of their fallen or imprisoned comrades. Just like Vera Deacon. Yes. Clara was overwhelmed by the number of letters that she received, but she was happy to be working. I am oh so busy. My plan is a perfect success and is growing popular, I think. At least, no one condemns it that I know of. Clara turned the Enterprise into a formal office. The Office of Correspondence with Friends of the Missing Men of the United States Army, which I'm sure fit very nicely on a letter. I still prefer Wounded and Missing Heroes. Suck it. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's a better Do name. Do we think, in a fight, who would win? Clara Barton or Vera Deacon? Vera Deacon. Why? Maybe that's my patriotism coming oh, yeah, out. yeah, fair enough. That's a good answer. Good answer. <laughs> Despite Clara's best efforts, the need for money to finance the office and the sheer number of individuals and organisations needing government money after the war meant that it never developed into a large operation. Lincoln's assassination really damaged the reconstruction plan he had for the South, which led to that spiral, in some cases led to the spiralling poverty, sharecropping systems and other issues that still dog the South even today. It's almost like the guy who killed him didn't think it through. Really? I mean, any war afterwards, Reconstruction's hard. Civil War, extra hard because you're trying to fix both sides yourself and come back together as like a nation. Add into that your president's assassinated, and it's just a mess. Interestingly, like, Robert E. Lee was actually like, look, don't put up any monuments to the Confederates. We lost, and if we keep putting up Confederate monuments, it'll make people upset and, like, perpetuate the war. And the Southern people still today ignore that and put up statues of um, Robert E. Lee everywhere. So for Clara, the difficulty of getting anywhere with her work to find the wounded or the dead threw her into a period of depression, which she didn't emerge from until her old mentor Francis suggested that Clara start a lecture tour. Between the end of the war in 1868, Clara travelled around the newly United States of America giving lectures of her experiences. <laughs> it was an energising experience and brought her into contact with suffragist Susan B. Anthony as well as civil rights activist Frederick Douglass, but it was also exhausting, and by 1868, Clara's doctor advised her to travel somewhere for a break from her work. So she travelled to Europe. 
I've said it before, and I'm sure I'll say it again, but I really wish doctors would still prescribe trips to the seaside or Europe when you're feeling overwhelmed. If you're feeling overwhelmed, you can go on a little trippy. You can't go more than five kilometers from your house. <laughs> go on a little trip to the supermarket. Woohoo! In 1869, nice. Clara found herself in Geneva in Switzerland, where she met the founders of the International Red Cross. When she returned to America after a brief detour through the Franco-Prussian War, she campaigned for the US government to recognise the International Committee of the Red Cross, but wasn't successful until the 1880s. So is this because America had that really serious issue of isolationism, like they really wanted to be themselves by themselves mm. through both World War I and World War Two? Like, what's that about? Yeah, definitely. Mm. Definitely. We can do it ourselves! Like- President gets shot in the head. Oh no! So much of American history can be explained by America looked at how other people did it and wanted to do it differently just because they could, Mm. and that's why. There was also the sense um, with a lot of politicians that America would never be in a war like it was with the Civil War again, like this would never happen again, so they weren't going to need a formal organisation to help with that because we're never doing it again. We're never going to end up in war again. Like they hadn't met themselves. So, yeah, so there was that element of we don't want to do what someone else has done because we've got to prove we're the best by being different. Mm. And then also, we're not going to need it. It's going to be irrelevant. So what's the point in taking the time, effort, money, etc. to set it up? It's like, if I don't, if I don't have it, I won't need it. But if I get it, I'll need to use it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So on the 21st of May, 1881, the American Red Cross with Clara as president held its first official meeting in Washington, D.C., which no longer had slavery. Clara spent the rest of her (laughs) life working for the Red Cross, dedicating herself to humanitarian efforts. Which, there's so much more that she did with all this, but we just don't have time to go into it. It's women of war, not women of humanitarian aid. But if you want us to do a part three, let us know. Uh, I will be happy to add a part three to Clara with her Red Cross work. Um... But I had to cut out so much to get here. So much. (laughs) Clara continued to rub people the wrong way with her approach and was forced to resign as president of the American Red Cross at the age of 83 because of her desire to do everything herself and not share the work or the credit. A behaviour which, as we have said, followed her her entire life. She hasn't learned. Clara died on April 12th, 1912, at the age of 90. Three, which was good timing. Three days before the Titanic sank. Three days. Oh, fun fact. Also, two years before World War I started, which is good because she probably would have wanted to be in the action of that as well. So, can you imagine this 90-year-old, like, tottering around the battlefield with her walker, like, in the trenches, like, gotta help the wounded? Well, to be fair, the Americans didn't enter, really, until 1917, so... But I could see her going over herself, like, knowing Clara. Yeah, that's true, actually. I I could see her, like, if she wasn't 90, um, I could see her being like, oh, like, this is my duty, I'm gonna travel over to Europe to the Western Front myself to help out. Maybe she would have just written a bunch of letters, like, when I was in the American Civil War, I did this. And it's like, thank you. You didn't have machine guns. Thank you. <laughs> thank, Thanks, Grandma. You didn't have tanks. Like, not to discount her or anything, <laughs> but, um, yes. Oh, no, definitely. It's like what I said in, like, I think the first episode, like, every war you fight, you're, like, using the lessons you learned from the war beforehand so yeah there is a lot of stuff they learned from the american civil war they used in 
World War One and stuff, obviously, and other battles in Europe. Yeah. But um, there was just so many. Like, as we mentioned, the first real trench warfare was during the American Civil yeah. War. So the, all the all of the tactics that would come back in World War One in trench warfare That's just... started <sighs> in Petersburg, Richmond. Oh, Petrograd, Richmond, yeah. It's like, it's just an extra irony because <laughs> considering the first action of Australians and Americans in World War One together, the Australians were like, don't run at the trenches because the, mach- the machine guns will get you. And the Americans were like, run at the machine guns? Okay. <laughs> That we're still following Ulysses S. Grant yeah. tactics. I find Clara really interesting. Yeah. Like, she did so much more than I expected. I started writing this episode because I'm like, I'm really busy at the moment. There's lots of nice information about her in biographies. It will be a nice, easy episode to do. And then it was like, oh, no, now it's two parts. Oh, no, it could be three. Oh, no, I've made a mistake. I think it's also I like, um, she's. it's like some women... Like all people, some women and more people. Um, not to say women are people. Some people are complicated. <laughs> Everyone is complicated and has a unique and complex inner life, obviously. But some, like Clara yeah. and like Roberta, for example, because we have such good records of them having a really complex personality in the sense of being quite selfish, mm. almost. And but the thing about Clara, she's like performing really selfless acts in that she's going onto the battlefield and risking her mm-hmm. life but she's also doing it in a way that she says like how good am I kind of thing yeah and how amazing she's sort of doing selfless acts yeah but also for selfish purposes but it's also in terms of like knowing she was complicated same with Roberta and stuff is so Clara wrote a autobiography of herself mm. and we have like you know most of her letters and documents and things and so the more sources you have about a person's life, the more you can see their complexities. Like when you've only got a few letters, then you get a very like particular view of them. So that's when it's easy to be like, oh, this person was amazing (laughs) because they wrote these three letters saying that slavery is bad or whatever. And so you're like, yay. But when you see someone in their full life from beginning to end, like 90 years of her life going through all this stuff, like you do see how her attitudes conflicted, how there was, like, you know, underlying motives for doing her selfless work that weren't always selfless. Mm. So, because we have all those sources, so we can see that. Yeah. And same with Roberta, you know, like, we had her autobiography. We can see the complexities. Yeah, true. Yeah. It's it's, it's just people are more complicated than you think. Like, you listen to Robert yeah. E. Lee, because it's like he was a Confederate general. <laughs> he was a very good one, and he was also a piece of shit because he was a Confederate general. Yeah. But he was a piece of shit for other yeah. reasons. But then again, he also wanted them to, like, when they were unified, he's like, let's stay unified. Don't build any statues. What's that? Oh, it's a statue of me? Wonderful. Thank you. I hate <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> thanks. I hate it. Her work, she's complicated, but also the work she did was very important. Yeah. And not only just because nursing itself is incredibly important, but because she was actively working to make sure there was nursing and that there was that kind of, interim step between battlefield and surgeon mm. that's yeah it's fascinating like, it also shows how much the role of nursing has changed from literally it's a very like traditionally feminine role either way it's still seen as a very feminine role but on the battle this is this this civil war yeah. is the reason why it's seen as a feminine role yeah um like this is where nursing became a big thing and it was like a respectable profession for middle class women to do. And so lots of them, particularly in the South, 
um, went out to do nursing in the war. What about Florence Nightingale, though? Yeah. This is around the same time. Yeah. No, it's like... um. But this is a point where nursing is still primarily about comfort and care and, like, almost palliative care a lot of the time, whereas now nursing is a legitimate attempt to keep people alive um, just because they know the technology at this point yes. to keep people alive after a certain point. Um, mm. Yeah, so I just find that very – we are going to have to do an episode on Florence Nightingale eventually, unfortunately. Oh, we will. She's on the – Lady with the lamp. Bitch with the, bitch with the torch. <laughs> yeah, and all that. <laughs> Lady with the graphs. Pip, 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 pip. Yeah, I was trying to think of something that was like started with P for with the pie charts. Person with the pie they charts. They were holographs. They weren't pie charts. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so that's pretty much it for Clara. Thank you to the most wonderful Vanessa for providing the voice of Clara and doing some actual acting, unlike me, who just likes to fuck around with voices. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Vanessa is thank a, you Vanessa for your Vanessa is a future lawyer based in Canberra she is very groovy big fan she is almost a full lawyer I know one full lawyer she's almost fully cooked almost the oven time is going to go off any minute and she is also in lockdown so shout out to everyone who is in lockdown across Australia right now and across the world we are going to I don't think anyone else is also New, New Zealand hey guys um Shout out to everyone. <laughs> You're kind of Australia. Yeah. Oh, I don't think they want to be right now. Shout out to Australians and <laughs> Kiwis still in lockdown. We are going to get through this eventually. I will look forward to seeing you all in 2032. Um, thank you for listening to the podcast and all your wonderful feedback. If you want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. If you to give us an email, that would be good. We have Twitter. We have Facebook. We have a website. Just Google Women of War Pod. We have Instagram. Plus the social media name of your choice, and you should be able to find us. If you want to reach out and just shout into the void with us, we love that. Send us a send us a tweet. Send us a DM. Slide into our DMs. I do not respond. need anyone sliding into we're, my DMs. We're thing. thirsty bitches. <laughs> we want praise and attention. Thank you. So um, thank you for listening. This has also been our second last episode for this season. Because I find when podcasts try to keep going all year round, you can really tell they're struggling. So we are going to do one more episode uh, and then we are going to finish up for a few weeks and we'll let you know when we come back for our third season of Women of War. Woohoo! We haven't decided on a date yet because life. Yeah, and last time we decided on a date, we ended up having to change it. So You did. So, you know, because life. Anyway, we will see you next time and we will leave you with Clara's words on the importance of her job. If I were to speak of war, it would not be to show you the glories of conquering armies, but the mischief and misery they strew in their tracks, and how, while they march on with tread of iron and plumes proudly tossing in the breeze, someone must follow closely in their steps, crouch into the earth, toiling in the rain and darkness, shelterless themselves, with no thought of pride or glory, fame or praise or reward, hearts breaking with pity, faces bathed in tears and hands in blood. This is a side of which history never shows. Thanks to the incompetence of the New South Wales government and their premier, Gladys Berejiklian, this episode was recorded over Zoom. We apologise for any audio issues. I think...
we should maybe stop that every single episode. (laughs) All right, I'm (laughs) I was thinking about it. I was like, we probably should be slightly less fully adversarially political (laughs) at the start of every single episode at the moment. This episode was recorded over Zoom. We apologise for any audio issues. I might put it in the end of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) You can if you want. That'd be funny. Harold Holt was probably pro-vaccine. Let's be real. Yeah, I reckon. Because he's from yeah, that generation probably. where they literally saw he the effects is. of polio and smallpox yeah. and measles. Like, he was a liberal, which is kind of political right in Australia. But yeah, it's at that a, time. It's a period of like when were a... actual liberals, not... Yeah. Yeah. You mean there was a time when politics was actually about politics and not just backstabbing and talking well, shit I... about everybody else? We're not talking about vaccinations anymore. No. Let's go to no. fight some confederates. You keep interrupting me when I'm trying to get us back on track. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I started you on vaccines. It's my fault. I apologize. So. Yeah. I will say Robert E. Lee, I've actually read a bit about him because he was a very good tactician for the era. And even though he was fighting on behalf of the confederates, he was a very fascinating mm. man. Also kind of a silver fox. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Problematic no. silver fox. Aren't they all? Aren't they all? 